This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Okay, well, we're going to switch into a really, I think, future-oriented uh, talk. I've worked with Jane for years at the Institute for the Future, uh, and she's uh, just a phenomenon, and so I couldn't be happier to get a chance to uh, talk with her uh, in front of you and everybody out there in and, and, uh, Webland. So Jane, talk a little bit about um, you know, how this whole gaming notion of virtual worlds developed uh, at the Institute for the Future. Sure, sure. Well, I actually started working with the Institute for the Future. For those of you who don't know it, it's a nonprofit research group, oldest future forecasting group in the United States. And um, a lot of what we do there is looking at new technologies and try to figure out how they'll change how we live in the future, right? Of course, the way all futurists do. Um, and I had just done my PhD at Berkeley looking at gamers and how the games they were playing was changing what they wanted to do in real life. Um, I, there was all these communities of gamers who would play their favorite games, feel like superheroes, get all these great collaboration skills, problem-solving skills, leadership skills, and then look for a juicy problem in the real world to solve that let them use their gamer skills in real life. And there was nothing. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were no games, no experiences, no platforms that let you go from being good at saving the virtual world to being good at saving the real world. So what I started to do at the Institute was to look for ways that you could create games or create gameful experiences that let people use their uh, skills and strengths from games to solve real world problems. And now we see this is happening everywhere. Games are helping scientists, you know, figure out how to cure cancer. They're working on climate change. They're working on uncovering government corruption. I mean, everything you can imagine. Yeah. I don't think people appreciate just how giant this world is. I mean, like when Chris was saying that a billion uh, photos are uploaded uh, every week in Facebook, right? So, wow, that's amazing. Tell us a little bit about just how big this global gaming uh, phenomenon sure. has grown to. So gamers do rival Facebook. There are more than a billion people worldwide now who spend at least an hour a day playing a game on a network device, console, computer, mobile phone. Um, so a billion people, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. And So how many of those <laughs> billion are in this room? How many of you spend an hour a day? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. an hour a day. Go ahead, out yourself. All those Angry Birds hours count. Okay, yeah, yeah, three. So this group is not evidently... Um, Demographically speaking, this is not the most representative for, uh, for So gamers. tell us more about this <laughs> yeah. world that we're not experienced with. Yeah. I mean, we do know one in four gamers is 50 years old or older. 
so that's you know changing. But the main thing is 97% of young people under 18 are playing games for more than an hour a day. Um, it's 13 hours a week for boys and eight hours a week for girls. It's 99% for boys, 94% for girls. And this has a, been a big shift over the last mm-hmm, decade. Mm-hmm, we used to have sure. a gender divide, um, but now it's 94% of girls um, are gaming regularly, getting the same proficiency with technology, getting the same social skills, um, collaboration skills. So that's actually really good news that we see girls gaming now. I totally agree. I mean, I can remember, uh, so it's hard to believe, but 25 years ago, uh, my uh, two boys, who are now 30, uh, were roughly, um, were, we decided we needed to get them engaged with games because it was going to be important for their future, not to mention their, their brain development. Um, and we used to say, you know, uh, if you sit in class uh, and you're lucky if the teacher calls on you to answer a question, to make a decision once an hour, that's a, unlikely. Maybe it's once a day. Whereas <clears throat> if you're on a game, you're making a decision maybe once a second, 3,600 times an hour. And the, that's what drives neural development in your brain. So my guess is that these kids actually have physically different wired brains mm-hmm. than the older of us. Yeah, and that's one of the areas I've gotten really interested in is the neuroscience of gaming. Um, and so just a couple interesting points we know about games now um, from what researchers are poking around and figuring out. Um, one is we know that gamers spend 80% of the time failing when they play their favorite games. Um, So four out of five times they fail and they keep going. Um, If you look at educational research, it's pretty widely known that the sweet spot for learning difficult material is uh, to be able to fail at least 50% of the time because it exposes the gaps between what you know and what you don't know. Um, And so just even to realize that we have this whole world of gaming where gamers are allowed to fail and and basically have to fail most of the time um, really does allow them to progress towards higher levels of, you know, proficiency and ability. And we also know that, um, you know, the average young person is going to spend 10,000 hours playing these games by the age of 21. Um, If you look at middle school and high school attendance, that's only 10,084 hours in the classroom um, with perfect attendance. So they're spending as much time playing games as they are in the classroom, um, learning how to be a good gamer as much as they are, know about anything else. That well, you know, it's, it, it's interesting that, that failing early and often is what you want people to do when you're prototyping or you're in startup mode or something like that. So those are really great skills. But I'm sure a lot of folks here are thinking um, that's a terrible statistic. Uh, you know, our kids are wasting 10,000 hours playing uh, meaningless yes. games. Yes, yes. You must, you must get this a lot. Yeah, sure. I mean, I did not come into this thinking that I would become an evangelist for gaming. I actually was interested in it because I was seeing gamers who were frustrated in their real lives, and I wanted to figure out how we could make them happier in real life. So I didn't start out thinking I was going to, you know, tell parents more games, you know, or educators more games, um, or doctors <laughs> more games. Um, but really digging into the scientific literature, um, everything we see about games is pretty great within reason. I should probably start with a public service announcement. Everything I'm going to say <laughs> is true if you follow a few rules. Um, one is um, adults have to game less than 30 hours a week, and kids have to game less than 21 hours a week. Um, we know statistically looking at huge populations globally, when you cross those numbers, more than 21 hours a week for kids or 30 hours a week for adults, the benefits do start to go away. You do get real life consequences. So 
keep it under that. Um, and you, uh, you uh, should be spending at least 50% of your time playing with people you know in real life. So you can be at home alone, connected you know, through the computer network to people that you know in real life or playing in person. Um, but most of these benefits do require some social interaction with a real community. That said, we know things like kids who spend more time playing video games score almost 30% higher on the Torrance test of creativity. This is a, you know, almost 50 years old validated storytelling drawing. And this was true even if they spent all their time playing violent games, um, which is something that I know parents worry about a lot. That there's, you know, but it's the problem solving. It's the yep. collaboration. Um, it still works. Even going all the way up to, um, you know, adults, um, there have been clinical trials now, many trials um, will be trying to validate this, showing that um, online games beat pharmaceuticals for treating clinical anxiety and depression. Um, 30 minutes a day of gameplay um, boosts positive emotions um, and actually stimulates you know, the same reward system that, uh, that the pharmaceuticals are trying to reactivate. Um, you can get reactivated through gaming, um, which is one reason why uh, my company is starting to look at doing uh, clinical trials for depression as well, yeah. That's amazing. And, you know, things like World of Warcraft, I mean, just talk about the scale of collaboration that occurs in some of these games. I mean, it's just unbelievable how... It is. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you have, in the virtual world, you can collaborate with 100 people at the same time. Um, But what's even more interesting are the global communities. Um, You have millions of people playing, and they're using wikis, and they're making YouTube tutorials, and they're using forums. You have this great collective intelligence community. Um, My my favorite game right now is Minecraft. Um, If any of you have kids... They're probably playing it, and if they're not, this is the game to get them involved. You have the Minecraft kids. Good. Um, they teach each other. It's a teaching community. I mean, it's basically um, you, as soon as you discover how to do something cool, you make a video, and you teach other people how to do it. Um, and it's this peer-to-peer educational culture that is actually inspiring all of the online educational systems. If you look at you know things like Coursera, Coursera um, yeah. anybody trying to do the Khan Academy, um, they're, where are they getting their insights and ideas from? It's from game culture. And you know, I always felt that school was so isolating. Um, you know, it's a hundred-year-old model to turn out identical uh, workers for assembly lines, uh, and the idea that you would be able to have a creative act that hundreds of people would think is really cool when you're in eighth grade uh, and what that would do for your Mm self-esteem. It's just not possible in the physical world. And and there's a lot of things like that, that the virtual world is vastly more capable of than the physical world can be, can be. It just can't be. You just can't find that many people (laughs) uh, physically, whereas virtually it's, it's trivial. And what you mentioned about this this idea that you can have creative agency and be validated as a creator is really important now. I mean, most all of the most popular games have now editors that you can make your own game content or the game is about creating. And um, what's neat is that that lines up with what we know about what gamers want. So there's been game uh, industry research looking at gamers, what do you want to feel when you play a game? And of course, there are things like excitement and pride, but the number one thing that gamers say that they enjoy feeling when they play is creative agency. Um, the feeling that they can try something and see the impact of it, to, to take a risk, to be seen as 
having the sort of creative power. Um, and that's a need that we don't always do a good job of fulfilling, you know, when we send um, kids to school or us to work. Um, but the ability to create and be seen as, as having creative power is, is huge in gaming. So, you know, I'm sure this sounds all kind of abstract to people. Um, one of the things, uh, if you haven't seen Jane's uh, TED Talk uh, this year, it is just a masterpiece, and I really think you all should look at it. And I wanted you to share a little bit from that about uh, just how personally this has changed your life. Sure, yeah. So I had, a, I had an interesting opportunity to put my theories and the research um, to the test when I was writing um, my book. I was about halfway through it, um, and I hit my head, and I got a concussion uh, that didn't heal properly. Um, it turned into post-concussion syndrome. So, um, you know, 30 days later, I'm still totally concussed, nauseous, headaches, can't think clearly, can't remember people's names, um, can't read or write, can't work on the book. Um, and my doctor told me that, you know, the most important thing was resting the brain, um, not to do anything that was triggering the symptoms, and although I was very anxious and depressed, um, she said, you have to try to be happy because the brain can't heal in a state of severe anxiety and depression, right? You need to change the neurochemistry. Whatever you, you know, whatever you can do, I know you're sick in bed all day, you're in pain, you can't work, just be happy. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, I was halfway through this book about the positive emotions that games provoke, how they connect us socially with people in our real lives. And um, I was at a pretty low point. Um, I was dealing with um, one, of, one of the most common um, side effects of traumatic brain injury is suicidal ideation. It's the first time in my life I'm dealing with thoughts of suicide. And it was kind of this, um, you know, thank God moment where I had this, the mental clarity enough to think, this seems impossible, but if you can make it a game, you can get through this. So just try. Um, and actually, besides the TED Talk, here's like an inside scoop. I actually put videos up while I was totally still brain injured, trying to explain the idea that I was going to make a game out of this. And um, it's, it's a little bit hilarious now in retrospect if you compare the two talks because I can't think of the right word and I'm, you know, I'm really struggling and not like this at all. And you can go back and see me trying to design the game in real time. And it didn't make hardly any sense. But um, as the more I sort of put it together using the idea of quests, something you could do every day um, to feel productive, um, to get the reward circuits going. Um, Power-ups, you know, games are always trying to collect power-ups, so you would look for things you could do um, that would make you feel happy or productive, like, um, you know, for me, just getting out of bed and walking around the block once. It was a power-up. Yeah, power-up. And then you would <laughs> battle the bad guys. Um, like, for me, I had to avoid things that triggered my symptoms, but I, I needed to try them. I mean try to read, see where it goes. You can read for a minute today. You can read for three minutes tomorrow um, and keep battling until you won. Um, and recruiting allies was the most important thing. Um, for me, it was easier to reach out to friends and family and say, I'm playing a game to heal my brain. Um, I want you to play it with me. Um, that was easier than saying, I'm really depressed. I'm really anxious. I know I hit my head six weeks ago and you thought I'm better, but I'm not. You know, um, that's hard to say. We don't like to be vulnerable. We don't like to feel awkward or ask for help. Um, but I was able to use the game to ask for help. So if you sort of fast forward, for me, it, it worked 
almost miraculously on the anxiety and depression, just feeling more connected, feeling like I had a purpose every day, um, the, all the cognitive stuff and pain. I mean, it took more than a year, but the, the game really stopped. It stopped the suicidal ideation immediately, and then it really worked on the depression and anxiety. So I posted about this online, and then people started using it for all kinds of things, like um, you know, for dealing with for chronic pain, insomnia, stress reduction, cancer, ALS. I mean, everything you could think of. Um, and based on seeing other people play the game, um, particularly to improve their social relationships, to get better support, to help their caretakers, um, and also to improve their own anxiety and depression around a traumatic illness or injury. Um, we, we wound up making an app out of it. There's a web service. It's all free. Um, we're running clinical trials on it now. Um, it, seems, it seems to be most effective around mental health um, challenges. But it's been quite a journey. That was, you know, three years ago and, um, and wound up um, being able to actually use the theory and research about games to, um, to try to help people uh, with really enormous health challenges. Well, and, and mental health is a tremendous problem uh, worldwide, but certainly in this country. And, and I think this feeling of being alone is a big part of it. Um, and the idea that you can get out of your brain, basically, and create this um, encouragement world, this, this world you can work in that's separate from the physical world that you feel often trapped in. Yes. Um, I think that's really an important uh, step forward. And so how have you turned this into this super best Lab, super best. That should be the, it's, it's super better, but I like this super idea. Better. The sequel will be super best. You there just, you go. You can, thank you for the million dollar yeah, that's idea. All right. <laughs> um, well, so, I mean, one of the things that you talk about getting outside of yourself. Um, so this is like a social game. It's a multiplayer game. You sign up to play for a challenge, um, but then you invite friends and family, or you can go into our community and recruit allies, maybe someone who's been there before, um, who wants to mentor you. Um, one thing we're finding with the game that's fascinating, we launched a, um, we launched a mobile in June. So we have 125,000 registered players now, um, is that we have a f- more than a 50% acceptance rate um, when you invite somebody to play who, to come up and, and um, become an engaged player, which in terms of um, you know, how games spread, that's, that's very, very high. I mean, you're lucky to get one in 100 people normally. Sure. And these allies spend more time on the game. They log in more often. They, they do more daily activities just trying to help other people, you know, suggesting a quest, suggesting a power-up, um, giving them positive feedback. And I, I think what we're discovering is that there's a tremendous desire to help others, obviously. Um, we're seeing that in the commercial game industry. Um, people think of games as being really competitive and maybe, you know, they bring out the worst in you. Um, but three out of four gaming hours are now spent in co-op mode. so cooperative gameplay. People really just want to help, right? Um, and uh, so we're seeing that in Super Better 2. Um, maybe this is a platform not just for people struggling with challenges, but would actually improve the mental health of anybody who's volunteering to be an ally because it's increasing your sense of meaning, of purpose, of connection. Yeah. Well, we've heard this morning already about uh, social entrepreneurship, and this is sort of taking it down to the basic social, human social involvement, namely individuals, um, mm-hmm. uh, that you don't have to solve 
a big crisis in the rainforest, you know, you can actually just help someone else get through a really difficult time. Yes. Well, this is, this is the big thing. I mean, it's something we've been grappling with. You know, we've talked about this many times. The great opportunity of network culture is to find little things for ordinary people to do. Uh, and crowdsourcing has been a huge success in some areas, um, you know, where you can get people to, you know, tag photos or, um, you know, little, little brain tasks, right? Um, but it seems to me there's a much bigger opportunity to unleash, I don't know, our compassion, our humanity, um, not just improving, you know, artificial intelligence, right. but actually what is the smallest thing that an ordinary person can do to help somebody else feel less alone or, or to feel more optimistic about a challenge? And, um, not a lot of people have explored this yet, but so like think about you know the Wikipedia the the unit of contribution is you know one fact. Um, what is the unit of contribution to help somebody who's having a hard time? Um, and we're trying to we're trying to build that out in Superbutter. Well, this is the networked version of what we used to say in the '60s about spreading random acts of kindness. Right. Now you can actually do it on a very large scale. Yes, and it's not going to be random anymore because we're gamers. It's going to be yeah. strategic. <laughs> we don't, we're not random people. <laughs> well, and, and of course, uh, you know, one of the things that I think this is going to intersect with is the whole um, mobile health, quantified self. We're going to have a great uh, panel uh, at uh, 1.15 um, on uh, mobile health, and then um, Mark will... Mark Bowden will interview me tomorrow on this quantified self. But in it, what's happening is that all of this data about us as individuals and the state of our bodies and so forth is coming out on the web. At least you can choose to share it. And so it's like this enormous amount of data that software can now be applied to and the software in particular of games. Uh, and so there's going to be these kind of like intersecting um, trends, I think, to where oh, we yeah. get gamification of helping us uh, every day during the day make better life choices sure. that have real downstream impact on the quality of our lives. Sure, yeah, and there's so many great experiments with this. I mean, one of my favorite projects that's been looking at, uh, first of all, you have to get people to collect the data, and, and people aren't always interested in that. But there was um, a great project called Asmapolis, um, like where um, they used game mechanics to get people to report um, air quality data and also um, uses of inhalers, like putting a GPS uh, you know, monitor on an inhaler so that you could see where people were having, to, um, were having these asthma attacks. And they used game mechanics to make people you know, more willing to participate, um, made it a community, made it fun. Um, and so you want, obviously, in a quantified self-environment, people have to collect the data for this to work. Um, but then also to make sense of it. Um, a lot of people are interested in game mechanics for behavior change. I mean, once mm -hmm. you see the data, you know, what are you going to do about it? Um, and we know that games are great at giving people concrete missions or quests um, that can be really context-relevant to your skill level, to your location, to the resources and allies available to you. Um, and I just think it will open up. It'll be so much easier instead of just telling somebody you have to lose weight, you have to exercise more, you know, and super better. We're excited about, you know, we'll be able to look at your phone and see that you haven't texted or called anybody in 48 hours. And right. we know for your social resilience, you need to do that. So we can tell you that we can tell if you haven't left, 
your house today and you're depressed and we can tell you about for a while. Right. I mean, things like that, we can be really... Um, now, this is going to revolutionize our lives as humans. I mean, you know, this, this next big thing we're going to have is emotion tracking. So, you know, everybody's going around like this all day long, right? Everywhere. Um, but there's a camera looking at your face all that time. And that camera, we have at CalIT2, for instance, a whole machi machine perception lab, and <clears throat> they've shown how that you, by just essentially reading the muscles on the face and using neural nets and so forth, you can uh, tell exactly the uh, mental state, uh, emotional state of the person, even the pain level uh, in preverbal kids uh, where you're trying to make sure you don't over-medicate them. They can't tell you what they're pain is, but this thing by reading their face can. Now imagine that this thing is reading your face all the time. There's digital signal processors in the phone that are powerful enough to in real time be essentially making a diary second by second of, of your mood and, and, and then comparing it. So what fraction of the day are you smiling compared to a week, a month? You know, These are incredibly useful indicators to not just mental health, but so much of that is actually, in the end of the day, biochemical. So serotonin, dopamine levels have a lot to do with whether you're depressed or happy and that sort of thing. So this is deep uh, insight into the person. Now imagine that, that the more data there is, the more artificial intelligence can do a good job of coming up with a predictor that is actually useful. And you know what? Of course, game developers like me get really excited about is you know designing the intervention. So you know the, you're looking at the screen and it sees that you're you're um, one of the metrics that we use in Superbetter is the three to one ratio. Um, so you, um, uh, some of you may know Dr. Barbara Fredrickson's research on this. You have to get your positive emotions um, to negative emotion ratio three to one um, in order to achieve a lot of health benefits, cardiovascular benefits. Um, social benefits people like you more they want to help you um if you uh if you are below three to one you really want to actively intervene um and of course game developers can design all kinds of fun interventions i mean we know just even literally playing angry birds for 30 seconds can actually intervene my favorite one is um looking at pictures of baby animals um research just came out of japan a week ago further validating this i think this is like the the internet has never been happier um, to hear anything <laughs> that um, it does it does have a lasting effect. You can look at a picture of a baby animal for thirty seconds and be more productive for an hour at the workplace actually more productive because your um, your attention is sharpened you 've got a positive emotions driving um, your activity this is, so game designers can just we can come up with a million things for you to do once once the system recognizes that you need that intervention. And the other thing that I thought was fantastic in your TED Talk is, um, I mean, again, this seems sort of abstract, but the idea that you will lengthen your life and that the life, I mean, literally in terms of the number of years that you have and the productive quality of those extra years uh, by these kinds of behavior changes and uh, feedback. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, after I went through my experience with the brain injury and, and I was really curious about what things seemed to help, like the one, you know, the five-minute walk and the baby animals, and I started to learn more about the 
field of resilience research. Um, and it turns out there are four areas of resilience that contribute to longevity and, you know, high quality years of life. Um, it's physical, obviously, um, which is basically means you just need to disrupt the sedentary lifestyle, which is, uh, I'm kind of thinking we need to hack conferences like this, um, <laughs> because, uh, too much sitting, it's too much sitting. Yeah. You should never sit more than a, a, an hour at a time. Um, but I'll do, I'll ask you guys, I'll teach you one little gamer geek culture thing that will help us, uh, interrupt. Just do it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, one of my favorite gamer geek terms is fiero, um, which is, you know, from the Italian word for pride when you overcome an obstacle. Um, it's sort of like the signature gamer emotion because you spend 80% of the time failing. So when you finally <laughs> win, you feel like oh, I really earned it. Um, and this is one of the, one of the universal emotions that everybody has the same physical expression for it. Um, like you see it in soccer players after they make a goal. Right. So the, you know, the fiero expression is like, wow. Right. Yeah. Like, so what we should do now is everybody should think of something hard that they've done in their lives. Like something you're really proud of. And we should do fear together because not yeah. only will it feel awesome, uh, we will help, help us live longer. Okay. So think of okay. something you did. And if you feel so inspired, leap out of your chair. Yeah. What, what are you going to think about? I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to keep okay, it. Okay. You, you mind, but you have something. Yes, I'm good. Okay. All right. You ready? One, two, three. Yeah. yeah. That's good. All right. All right. Good. So do that during every talk. They'll think, yeah. they'll think, uh, they'll think they're getting a standing ovation or something, yeah. and they'll be really uh, excited. Yeah. Well, Wayne, what's really funny, this, this is quite serious science, and the ability to um, make these better choices, to get up and move, uh, uh, let's move, as Michelle Obama's talking about, it's not just eating the vegetables, which would also be a good idea, um, but the uh, emotional state, you know, getting, having more positive emotion. Positive emotion is chemicals going around in your bloodstream. And, and that has a whole cascade of other hormonal uh, changes that you induce in your body. So this is for real. But the idea that, that you can have this virtual universe available to you on all these different platforms, right. but with gaming turned into essentially your personal growth coach, exactly. your personal assistant. Yeah. And every one of us has one that's customized to our lives, our numbers, our needs. Right. And, and only the web can do this. Only having a planetary computer that, uh, you know, I mean, the big things like uh, Amazon, Google, or these, these folks are adding like a million cores a year. You know, th this is, I don't think people have any idea how vast this planetary computer is becoming and how it just continues to exponentiate. And so that ability to have that kind of computing power focused on you, improving you, being your friend, that's a world we've never been in before. And by the way, I should, just to finish it up, so that was physical, the emotional that you just said. The key thing about emotional resilience is it really doesn't matter where the emotions come from. Um, you know, I've been doing this work for more than a decade, and one of the most sort of confounding critiques that I found of games that feels legitimate, and I've been struggling, you know, is it legitimate or not? Um, you know, it's just that what happens in games isn't real. So even if we feel good in the game, there'll be a letdown later. We'll leave the game. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a real achievement. It doesn't really move us forward in our lives. So 
it doesn't count. But now we know from the research on positive emotions and how it does change us physiologically that it does not matter where you get these sorts of emotions. And that's why now you're seeing all of these studies of games um, improving longevity, um, declining, uh, decline in dementia, um, improving relationships between parents and kids. That the positive emotions um, are real wherever you get them. And games seem to be better at producing them, you know, quickly, reliably, efficiently. They've done studies of kids in hospitals. They can control their pain and anxiety just by playing a game and focusing their attention. You can prevent post-traumatic stress disorder just by having somebody play a game like Tetris for as many hours as possible within the 24 hours after a traumatic event. I mean, there's just so many real interventions that we have now that um, I think finally we can put aside this idea that you know, what happens in the game stays in the game. Um, it well, it's is like, not if you like think that, that there's really, you know, there's reality out there, it's all in your brain. Yes. You know, I mean, your, your visual cortex is working with the auditory cortex to create what you think is reality, but, and there may be one, I don't know for sure, <laughs> but, um, but what we have in our brains is as virtual as what's, you know, in the web. Let's open it up for questions. People, uh, there's mics, I think we've got, here you go. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming to talk to us today. I'm Ted Moulter from the San Diego Zoo, and I have lots of pictures of baby animals. <laughs> <laughs> and you can spend 30 seconds or more. In fact, we have a live camera right now on our, our eight-week-old baby panda, and you can get that through a free app for San Diego Zoo, so if you get to do it, not to promote that. But what I wanted to ask you about, but I please do it. it. It's great. It seems like it's really good for your health, too. Um, I'm most interested in, in trying to find ways to preserve wildlife well into the future. And I w- when I learned about Superstruct a couple of years ago, I was really intrigued by the whole concept. How would somebody like me or my organization or even zoos and aquariums at large go about constructing a game like this to try to get people involved in activating solutions so that we ultimately aren't alone on this planet? Sure. Where would I start? Yeah. Um, so where would you start? By the way, I set up a zoo with some game developers um, a couple years ago. Um, so this is uh, totally works um, that you can do this. Um, there's a there's an organization called Games for Change. That's the largest um, nonprofit to curate examples and also help matchmake um, between organizations and developers. And within that group um, is a social network that I founded called Gameful, which is like playful, um, but gameful. um, Because uh, just as a brief aside, people... um, People think that gamers are playful, and they're not. Playful is, you know, improvisational, and, oh, let's try anything, and we'll be free. And gamers are so serious and, like, (laughs) goal-oriented and and strategic and take it seriously. And um, in many ways, it doesn't feel playful at all, so I refuse to use that word. So gameful (laughs) is the word. Um, And it's just a social network for people to find each other and toss on ideas. So that's a really good um, place to start. Um, And for anyone thinking, um, you know, with a similar, you know, how do I get involved... Um, honestly, if you just do a web search for game for X, game for zoos, game for third grade classroom, game for climate change, um, I think we could play a game right now where you could like give me five things and I bet you there will be 
case studies or examples for every single one um, because right. I can't we think can of any space. We can it with everybody out here looking yeah, at their Yeah, search smartphone. for some <laughs> the most random thing you can think of and uh, game for that, and there should be a case study. Um, and people are very generous um, and, uh, and, and, and helping out, um, especially university students. Um, all the time I get organizations to recruit um, from local universities because there's so many young people who are interested in games for good. Um, Let's get another question. Um, thank you. My name is Sue Rutledge, and I have a development background. I used to be with the World Bank. My question for you is, do you think games can be used to help people deal with abstract concepts? Now, let me tell you my example. We find there's, there's some views in America that poverty is a state of mind. In developing countries, it's not necessarily the case, but in America, it's a state of mind. And when you listen to Susie Orman and others talk about financial literacy, you see that there's an extraordinarily emotional content to financial problems. And the argument is that people who are, in, are perpetually in financial trouble are having trouble dealing with their emotional relationship with money. So my question to you is, do you think games could be used to help people deal with that emotional relationship with what is basically an abstract concept? Oh, yeah. Um, there are so many good examples here um, where people are looking at games and poverty and games and money. Um, I'll tell you about one of my favorite examples um, was a, a group um, out of New York City um, called Area Code. Where if you're looking for lots of examples of really creative projects trying to solve real world problems, Area Code is a, is a good one to look at. Um, they did a game around money um, where they wanted they went to um, uh, communities in the South that had um, high rates of um, mortgage defaults, um, high rates of unemployment, low rates of savings, that sort of thing. Um, and they made up a currency um, called uh, some. What, do you remember? Make making money at making Georgia was right the first pilot M A C O N so they had like these making money um, and all so imagine dollar bills but all the dollar bills have been cut in half and they just gave out all this money but they were all half the dollar bills and the currency could be used in the local like different local stores and services would would redeem them like cash but you had to find the other person with the half of your bill. And they created this social gaming environment where you could find, and then you would meet up in person, and then you could have, you know, if we met at a coffee shop, we could, you know, use it there or whatever. Um, and it created this kind of social layer and, and physical community layer um, that was, you know, really designed to transform the community, but also to bring, um, you know, the positive emotions around it, the sense of self-efficacy, you know, that you really... Um, have solved this problem and, and had this success. Um, and this is a really interesting, I mean, basically my answer is yes, there's so many just totally unusual and crazy things that you can think to do with game design um, that bring in, um, bring in positive emotions and social experiences and physical environments um, around um, even these really abstract questions. Okay, back in the back. Ramesh Rao, Kalaji, too. Uh, my question is, is there a genotype associated with gamers? Uh, is there anybody that's found that there is a certain genetic uh, profile? Oh. Uh, that? Yes. Um, well, you know, uh, around different types of games, um, yes, I, I think. Um, I mean, I, so I, I won't uh, pretend to understand exactly what, you know, genes are being expressed, how, um, but... Uh, Certain, you know, 
we'll just look at it even just at the gender level. Um, we know that boys tend to be more motivated by game environments where mastery is really emphasized, um, certainly competitive environments, um, but even you know, self-competition, um, whereas uh, girls almost universally are, are spending time in environments where there is collaboration, cooperation, exploration, discovery. Um, and uh, that's... That's interesting because as we start to do game design for solving real-world problems, um, you have to think about how different, uh, different types of people are, are drawn to different types of games and motivated differently, you know, motivated through social, like the, the make and money is a good example of a social, uh, more social solution. Um, and I think, yes, I'm, I'm sure you could dig deeper and find actual um, variations in the code. We do need to do a mashup between 23 and me, uh, yeah. getting your, your genetics and, and gamers. Yeah, back here. I was curious if you uh, had any thoughts on Siri and Google Now and Watson, kind of the virtual wingmen, and is there going to be any changes around that? Huge. So one of the biggest next stages in the nature of the cloud uh, is it's going to become much more intelligent. Uh, there was an article that just came out, I think, yesterday um, about Google uh, using the uh, massive amount of computing but also the massive amount of data that's there to improve neural networks. And they said they were, for instance, getting a 25% increase in voice recognition accuracy just doing that. But this is one of those gifts that keeps on giving because the more data there is out there and the more computing it takes to support the more users, the more this planetary computer capability grows. And so I've said for some time that, that you know, essentially imagine that there is a service that if you're building an app you can tap into that is intelligent, that can as predictive capability. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of artificial intelligence methods, whether it's neural nets or other things that can, can take advantage of this. But I think that's going to be almost like a layer uh, that as you build apps on top of the cloud, that's something you'll be able to tap into. And it gets at just a huge number of things. But I think, imagine Siri 5.0. So, you know, five years from now or something like that. I think it will astonish you how intelligent this entity becomes. Remember, Watson was on a pretty small set of computers, uh, and actually it was a lot of data for like a human, but compared to a billion photos a week, uh, not that much data. And, and so you know, Watson is going on in the cloud for IBM, to, and, and they're you know, putting in like, I don't know, all the medical textbooks and things like that. Um, and so uh, this is one of the biggest trends I see coming in the cloud is for it to become much more intelligent and for you to have, um, we used to talk about smart pets. You know, I mean, I'm more into, like, virtual pets than real ones. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, you don't have to clean out the litter box and stuff. But... Um, but, you know, these things are really going to, you know, there's a lot of robots from, the, like, Japan that have, that have done this. But I think you're going to have, actually, multiple uh, personalities for you in the cloud that 
just become a part of it. I mean, so like you sort of have this kind of more split personality. Um, and it will simply get stronger and better every day. In the back. I have two questions. First is, can you recommend a game for those of us who are over 60 who have never played a game? The second question is the disconnect between the idea of physicality and the actual sedentary nature of games, particularly if you're doing something 20 hours a week. Sure, absolutely. Um, So I I think Minecraft is the kind of coolest game to check out right now. Mine, like, you know, coal mine, craft, like, crafts and services. Um, You can play it on any computer, so that's a good, you know, easy place to start. Um, And uh, what's great about it is that it's kind of like Legos. You build whatever you want, um, except imagine that um, evil monsters come and try to destroy whatever you built every night. So like older brothers. Yeah. (laughs) and uh, so you, there's also architecture going on, design going on, resource management going on. But you can just also wander around and see what other people have built. You get on their server. The, you, you know, you appreciate them. You're a fan. It's, it's, it's great. So, and it's really easy to get into. Um, and if you just need a nudge, just go to YouTube and search for the Minecraft videos. And you'll see gamers explaining what, they, what they're doing. Um, and, uh, and there's a billion tutorials. So it's really easy to dive into. Um, so that's what I'd recommend starting with um you know the physical nature is something games are working on i mean obviously we know we have all these physical interface games um like the connect and and the playstation move and um and the wii um which does a decent job um but probably will not replace certainly will not replace physical activity um what we're hoping for now what the research is suggesting is that it serves effectively as a gateway or springboard to physical activity. Um, There's lots of research around self-efficacy that happens in gaming, where if you have a successful experience of being physically active, even if it's low intensity, um, but it's in front of a screen, that it changes your perception um, or increases your likelihood of doing something physically active in the real world, particularly if you have an avatar in the game that looks like you. Um, And so you, and that kind of amplifies how awesome and badass you are. Um, Stanford um, does, has the best research um, on that right now. Um, you can, so, so I think to think about the physical aspects of games as being a gateway to real-world activity um, is, is important. And then there's also, you know, as long as we're doing public service announcements, um, a lot of folks in the game industry are just reminding gamers to stand up for the last 10 minutes of any game that they're playing. Um, and so uh, because you can play almost any game standing up. And uh, it's as important for those of us who are working at our computer for, you know, more than 20 hours a week um, that we should be doing that, too. So actually, this is going to this question is going to become, I think, sort of dated because the the virtual world is going to very quickly overlay the physical world as we walk around. I don't know. Have any of you had a chance to try Google Glass? So these are these little glasses that Google is developing, which project this virtual world over the physical world. Um, we'll all be wearing them, you know, I presume in, in, in five years. Um, and at that point, I think the world of gaming and our lives, as we just walk around and do things, and will 
confuse. And, and you're, you're going to have a augmented reality that is vastly more informative than physical reality. Um, like I'm looking at you and I don't know your names unless my eyes are good enough to read a tag. Uh, I don't know what you do, but that's crazy. I mean, you all have that information on the web and I can look at you and, and the power of facial recognition is enough to figure out who you are. My AI can go get your data and, and, and put it over your head. Uh, and you know, that's the kind of world we're gonna be living in in just five years and we'll never go back. And so that world the sort of thing that Jane's been talking about for years uh, of how the ability to have that software virtual world and our physical world come together is going to be able to make us all superheroes. <laughs> well, and certainly if the real world is as interesting as the virtual world, it should ameliorate the couch potato effect a little bit. Yeah, well, there's always people who are never going to be, I mean you know, athletes or, you know, we still like to sit around. But if we can get a little bit of um, that, you know, uh, physical activity into what we think of as sedentary now, hopefully we'll spring more people out into that real world where they can keep the game going with the augmented reality. Awesome. Okay, well, let's thank Jane. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.